Support for this podcast comes from PayPal. Small business owner, PayPal QR codes are the safe and easy payment option. It's all the security PayPal is known for online, in person. Cash only, QR codes allow you to accept credit or debit with everyday low fees. No additional hardware or software needed. Use the app to generate your unique QR code. Customers scan your code with their PayPal app to pay you. Learn more at paypal.com slash us slash get QR code. This is episode number 45 with our guest, Sarah Domin. Welcome to the Hidden Entrepreneur Show. My name is Josh Carey. You want in on a little secret? I was in hiding for 40 years. Yeah, I was hiding every part of myself in every situation. And I can tell you one thing, hiding sucks. I'm now on a mission to help extraordinary people like yourself rediscover the world around you, connect beautifully with others, and excel tremendously in all you set out to do. Join in. It's The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. Well, hey there, guys. Thank you for tuning in and joining us. Welcome to the studio. You're tuned directly into The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. I am your host, Josh Carey. My guest today, are you ready? Are you ready for this? Listen closely. Listen to the words I say. My, my guest today is the only woman in America who fabricates and manufactures copper cookware in her garage, no less and builds it the way the Smiths of the United States did several hundred years ago. And I'm not talking about your neighbor, Debbie Smith, and her family. We're talking about Smiths, the people who worked with metal hundreds of years ago. That's how she did it. To make matters even better, she also has had a varied career from her first job producing commercials for Sitgo to building a Silver Anvil award-winning event coordination company. She now works as a metalsmith of vintage and modern cookware and manufactures pure metal kitchenware in tin, copper, and iron all out of her garage. She is on a mission, I'm telling you. Oh yeah, she's also a novelist. Her debut novel, Widow 1881, won the Laramie Award Grand Prize for Western Historical Fiction, among other awards. And she's in talks for media development. How amazing. Let's meet this amazing woman. It's Sarah Dahman. How's it going, Sarah? It's awesome. It's awesome. How's it going with you? It, it's just as awesome. Why is it awesome? What is so awesome? Tell me. What? Everything? No. That's you know good. what? I feel so lucky to do what I do every day with everything I get to touch that it's really hard to complain because, you know, anything I, any problem I have is a first world problem. So, you know, like my kids are being annoying or, you know, I have to go run more errands than I want instead of work in the metal shop. That's not anything close. Everything's awesome. That's why it's awesome. It's amazing that you say that. Very true. And um, we, we, we often have to stop and really tell ourselves that because we often don't realize how good we have it. Speaking about how good we have it, you're the only woman in America who does this. Fascinating, first of all. Second of all, literally, why is that the case? 
I think it's a dying trade amongst the entire country, not just with women. It's not like, like every woman decided to say like, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm done. It's like, nobody really knows how to do it. A lot of the people who ask me questions about trying, when they're trying to get kind of back in the trade in their retirement, it's men. Um, it, and, and it historically was not a woman's trade. So, um, you know, they did happen. There's like, there's little snippets in the English papers saying like, you know, a, a, a tinsmith died, but hey, his wife and son are still going to do it. So like under duress, women would do it, but um, it, it's never been a, a, a feminine trade. And then the trade itself has disappeared as we kind of move to giant manufacturing or overseas manufacturing. And that knowledge is just disappearing. So what is the actual underlying or overriding mission here for you? Why are you slaving away in your garage doing this? Besides the fact that it's fun and I get to play with power tools and get really dirty every day. <laughs> um, no, you know, part of it is um, I, I believe that we're starting to have conversations about um, being cognizant of our, our, what we're doing to the world, however that may be, whether that's where our food is coming from, whether that's uh, how much energy we're using. And so I think that, you know, it's important for people to start thinking in terms of like, do I really need a thousand pots and pans over the course of my life? And every five years they go in a landfill because they fail, or do I really need like five and they all work and I'll be able to pass them on. I'm making those pieces that will be able to be passed on. Um, and also because I want to stimulate conversation about if we care where our food comes from, we should care where our cookware comes from. So, yeah. Why, why is that actually? Now, full disclosure, I am not a cook. I don't like it. I don't enjoy it. I don't really know it. All I do know is under, you know, inside my cabinets, I have a variety of pots and pans that I think came from my wedding registry that I didn't create. So I'm not even sure what was bought. I'm like, oh, I got to boil water. This looks like it should boil water. Uh, and, you know, I go from there. Not a cook. So what is it about what I may have in my cabinet that I, I should be aware of? Well, I think you should ask the same questions about your cookware that you do your food. So I think if we're saying, where does our food come from? What did it eat before we bought it? Is it sustainable? Is it renewable? All those questions, you should say the same thing about your cookware. Where was it made? Who made it? What's it made out of? Was it made sustainably? Was it made without using a lot of energy? Do I use a lot of energy when I'm cooking with it? That's something a lot of people don't think about. We don't realize our stoves have slowly evolved over the past several decades to handle cookware that doesn't conduct heat as well as it used to. When we were all cooking in copper, you didn't need a lot of heat. You weren't using a lot of BTUs. Now we do because we have slower cookware. Stainless steel is 25 times slower than copper. To heat. What, what are some of the metals that I should reconsider uh, if I'm using them? You, oh, you mean like, well, I guess it, you know, it depends. So aluminum cookware is inexpensive. It's horrific for the environment to extract and to refine and make into cookware or into anything made out of aluminum. Um, you know, stainless is, is fine other than it's slow and you're using a lot of energy to cook with it, it's, but it's safe. Um, you know, any type of, I think it's hilarious when people say, I have ceramic cookware. 
And I want to go, you understand ceramic is an insulator of heat, not a conductor. So it's like cooking with something that's meant to, to, to keep heat out. <laughs> that's why the old days they used to put like oil and things in ceramics because it would keep the heat out and keep it cool. And when you're in a foundry, they hold the molten iron inside ceramic crucibles because it, it doesn't conduct heat. So to cook on ceramic cookware just is just so inefficient and doesn't make any sense to me as a metalsmith. Um, you know, and anything that's cheap, anything that's cheap and is usually nonstick because probably the last coat is, you know, paint and shellac. I mean, mm. it, yeah. That doesn't sound good. What, no. what should I be looking for in my kitchen? What do I want? I think you should say to yourself, I only want to cook on pure metal, pure metal. So that's cast iron or cast steel or, um, you know, that kind of cookware. Um, that's copper. Uh, tin lined copper is the best. It's conductor of heat, but you can do stainless lined copper if you so desire. Um, the, that's a totally separate debate. Um, you can also, I mean, you can bake in ceramic cookware. That's great for baking because it's insulating the heat into your food, you know? So really, you know, think about it in the terms of purity, the way you do your food. Clay, iron, copper, tin, pure, not a mixture. The purer, the better, and the longer to last. It's so amazing because this, this, this really comes down to we don't know what we don't know. I never knew this before speaking to you that my cookware, you know, is, is actually a thing that I may not want in my body because things are going to transfer. It can. Some of the cookware will, yeah. I mean, anything cheap and quickly made and, and made out of a bajillion ingredients that, you know, when you look it up, I mean, it's all usually public knowledge in some way, shape, or form, and they disclose what their, how their cookware is made. And you go, that, really? Like all those layers? It's the same idea. And, and you know, and I, I'm not going to say like, oh, well, this particular cook for, cookware puts heavy metals in your body because it's really not, it, that's, you're going to be dead before anything really accumulates now. We've, we've learned enough that way. But it's, it does come down to, you know, and, and just like Teflon, we didn't know about Teflon when it first came out. And now we do. You know, when people cook with Teflon, it, it kills your birds. What do you think that really means for us? You know, what did you say? It kills did your you know what? Birds. Birds. Like you can, yeah. Like if you have like songbirds and then you cook in a lot of Teflon, your birds will die. <laughs> I only know that because Bob, my, the tinsmith that I, I work under, he used to have a lot of birds and they cooked in Teflon and all the birds died. And I mean, I'm, that's just one story, but wow. I'm going to probably get like sued by Teflon now. <laughs> no, I'm not saying anything that's not already been said. Exactly. <laughs> So you are, you're, you're clearly in this industry. How, how do you get the word out about all this? Like this, it's yep. education. And I mean, it's scary because there's so few people saying what I'm saying. No one wants to think about it and talk about it. It's kind of the same way the organic food movement had to start super grassroots um, conversation after conversation. And, you know, really, and thankfully social media has grown so much since the food discussion became something that hopefully it takes less time and effort to start getting people to talk, at least talk about this and be aware of it and start to think in terms of longevity. Like, do I want to go to Walmart and buy a $20 pan that's going to fail in three years? I'm going to throw it in the garbage. It's going to fill a landfill and I'm going to go and spend another $20. 
Well, you do that over the course of your life. You fill the landfill and you have nothing to show for it. Or you can pay a little bit more on the front end and save money over the course of your life and never have to fill a landfill because your pots are going to your kids and your grandkids. But we aren't, we don't think like that anymore. There's this, we have that throwaway mentality and I'm, I, I'm, what I make is not a throwaway mentality. So you have to just, it's so much education. Hopefully people like learning like I do. When did you first get into this specific aspect of uh, Smith? Um, well, I started, when I started to um, decide I wanted to do a cookware line and have it American made and had it, had it, have it made as local as possible, um, I originally thought, well, I'll just have people who know what they're doing make it. And then, um, and there are some things I can't do. Like, I don't have a giant foundry in my garage because... Uh, for a large number of reasons. We'd probably get kicked out of the neighborhood. I don't have enough room. You know, I don't have, you know, hazmat equipment. Um, but <laughs> but I, uh, I, I, it never occurred to me that I could be the one doing it, not because I'm a woman or anything, but because it seemed like such a specialized thing. And, um, and I had people who were willing to learn how to do this because no one was doing it anyway. And then after a, my apprenticeship with a, a Smith up the road who just happens to live nearby and he was teaching me the old ways, I sudden, suddenly realized I could do it myself because how to make cookware that you use today is really the same way you made cookware 200 years ago. So it all applied. And then I was like, hey, I can buy power tools and do this myself. So I did. Wow. So now this is called the Hidden Entrepreneur Show, and it's all about discovering, understanding, embracing your fears. I spent decades in that world that colored everything I did or everything I did not do. In your specific scenario here, getting into this industry and the way you are, what kind of fear or struggle were you up against? The fact that no one was doing it. I mean, people were making cast iron, you know, people were making pottery, but where the copper was concerned, it was, it was already a lost art. So there, there wasn't anyone manufacturing copper cookware in America. So every time I would pick up the phone or send an email, I'd either never get a response or they'd be like, oh yeah, we don't do that. And I'd be like, well, do you think you'd like to try? No. Oh, Okay. Do, where can I call somebody else? No, I don't even know. We don't, I don't even know where to send you. I'm really sorry. Good luck. I mean, that was the call. I have lost track of how many times that was the type of phone call I had. Um, and, and, and it was so disheartening. And I started to think like, what the F did I decide to do? Like, is this even doable? Did I bite off more than I can chew? But then of course, you know, you kind of go, well, fine, I'm going to force it to happen. And I was very lucky. There was a, a man in New York, um, he and his wife and part, uh, their business partners were looking to do the same thing kind of at the same time. And they had a little bit of a head start on me, but we were all sitting there looking at each other like, does anybody know where we can cut copper rivets or do we have to go to India or Brazil or China? Like nobody's making copper rivets. Like it was, it was this really painstaking piecing together to be able to do this again. And the roadblocks were weekly, just constantly, because nobody knew what they were doing. Where so did, that was where, 
where did this persistence come from? Because you said I, I made call after call after call. You easily had every opportunity to say, forget this. I'm going back to what I was doing. What was driving that persistence, really looking inside? Uh, the easy answer is to say I'm a very stubborn German-Polish person. <laughs> fair, fair. Um, and I, I was, I've always been of the belief that if, if you really want something, if it, there's, there, you work, you just work and eventually it will make like almost kind of like that, you know, force of energy inside of you. And if you can just kind of keep pushing it in, it will manifest and there's always a way to just, you have to get more and more creative. I don't, I don't know. It just must, it's just inherently a stubbornness in me. Maybe I still am going to blame the German Polish thing. That's the easiest answer. <laughs> oh, that's fine. If you're looking at all this, I, I see that there's a lot of creativity in this. How did you, how did you find the business side of it? How do you balance those two sides, right? Because this is a very creative endeavor, right? It is. It is in some ways. I mean, creative in terms of problem solving, certainly. Creative in terms of designing, yes, but I just go back to the history books and I go, huh, what were the American fur trade kettles like? Oh, like that. Let's, you know, kind of mess around with them and then there you go. So there is some design elements, but not like pull an idea out of thin air and be creative with it. Um, the business side though is I have a husband who's good at accounting. Um, I'm not good at accounting, but I had also had other businesses. I had been my own business owner for 10 years oh. and I understood the marketing and I had that background already. And I, so that part, the communication to the outside world and to kind of run a business and how to quick get an LLC and put up a website that all came very naturally already. I was lucky that I had had that groundwork laid in a different type of career because it mm. just all translates, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I love going back to the very beginning with my guests and seeing how all this took shape for you, who you are and what you are today. Take us back to the very beginning. Sarah, as a young, young child, paint that picture for us, please. What was that life like? I come from a village. And that sounds like, doesn't that sound like I come from a village in the mountains in Tasmania? Like, I mean, it's, it's, it's not that. It's a very small village in north central Wisconsin. I remember when the one and only stoplight came in. I was in middle school. It was a big deal. Go to the stoplight. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> so small. And, um, and it was a place where, um, it, like, a lot of people didn't go on to college or if they did, it was the community college nearby, um, you know, the next town over. Um, and I was very lucky that my parents took us traveling. So I think at a young age, I noticed the world was much bigger. And I always wanted to like leave because that was where anything could happen. Whereas in, in Stratford, it's, it's um, the world is, is small. It's like living in a snow globe, you know? So I wanted to, I wanted to experience that and, and do something bigger. And I didn't even know what it was, but I knew it wasn't going to happen there. So there was a lot of frustrations growing up. I felt like I didn't fit in a lot because I think, not that they would use this word. I think a lot of my friends probably felt that I was too ostentatious for my own good, <laughs> but you know, just, I probably, I was too ambitious. 
Mm. And that wasn't necessarily a good quality in a girl. And you're interesting. And your um, parents supported that within you. They, they wanted me to be practical. They didn't want me to go off and be an actress or anything that made no sense to them. You know, they still, they were small town people and they were like, you need to have a career. I mean, until you get married, then you can be a good stay at home mom. Um, you know, but your career should be, uh, you know, make sense. You know, banking is good. Uh, you know, <laughs> you know, marketing is fine. You know, it still was within that stricture of that kind of careful small town mentality. So, you know, any type of art, it was like, nice, nice hobby, Sarah. So you felt like you were just a small town girl living in a lonely world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I didn't marry anyone from my small town. <laughs> I would still be stuck there. <laughs> and you had visions of an artistic endeavor from an early age. I guess, but I, I couldn't have articulated what that was. And it certainly has changed to me. And I was a wedding planner. I was a producer. And now I'm making cookware I, and, you know, and writing books. I mean, yeah. I still don't, don't call myself a, a novelist or a writer. When people say, what are you? I always, I kind of like freeze up. I'm like, Ma mom, I uh, make my metal books, things. It's the weirdest. Um, I, it feels like I shouldn't be allowed to use those labels to describe what I do still to this day. Isn't that yeah. weird? It's like the, it's like the leftover upbringing. I don't know. Wow. So you, you now are, are growing up in this, how many people in your village there? Um, when I, was born it was 1515 people and when I, uh, I've gone back it's up to 1500 and I think 23 people <laughs> over all these years might be 27 now 30, so 30. you so yeah. you're making you're making it work for you uh, how were your high school and schooling years the same I mean high school is lonely I went from a graduating eighth grade class of nine to a graduating high school class of 61. Really? And um, yeah, and it was, it was not fun. Is this like confession hour? Do I have to be like, nobody wanted to date me because I was weird and they kind of felt that I was weird. <laughs> like, I mean, like, <laughs> like what, is that true? What are you digging for? Yeah, it's true. Of course it's true. <laughs> so nobody wanted to date you because you were weird. Now, full, full confession and disclosure, I can relate. Go ahead. Now you. Oh, <laughs> no, no, I no. Well, I mean, you know, when you can sense if people are, are different and I, I had different interests already. I was a reader. That was weird. You know, I wrote books. I had friends who were really supportive, but guys, no. No. Plus I was a wrestler early on and I was the only girl wrestler. Maybe that was the precedent. I was, a, I was a wrestler on the boys wrestling team. So after that, like then, then they don't even see you as a girl. You know, it was like, Hey, Canole, come here. Look at, we should get these for the weight room. Like it wasn't, it was like, by the way, you guys, you can ask me to prom if you want. <laughs> and like th that just never translated. They'd be like, yeah, but like your traps are bigger than mine. Like that, oh. that'd be weird. <laughs> 
You know, I, I, I really appreciate and love this conversation because like I said, I was, I grew up in a, in a fine town. You know, I think we had a hundred thousand people, whatever. My graduating class had about 400 people. So that's probably like a stadium compared to you. And mm -hmm. I, I, I was, I was weird and lonely and only wanted a girl and they only didn't want me. So I get it. You know, you just try to you, you just try to get the attention in any way you can and uh, hope it works out. Well, yeah. Or like me, I just was like, well, fine. You know, I'm leaving as soon as I graduate. Like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm leaving you all. No, I like going back. It's a nice, uh, cozy place to go back and let my kids be safe and in a tiny town. And, and it's wonderful. But it's not where I would have been able to experiment with what I've been able to do and, and you know, create. I mean, I, I, I don't think I ever would have even thought that making cookware was something because I probably never would have written a book, you know? It's interesting because it, I, I don't know if um, going against the grain is the proper term, but you said that like, like right now today, you're, you're the only woman who does this. And then you said in high school, you were the only girl on the wrestling team. So there's always something there, right? I guess. I mean, it's not something I seek. It Correct. just kind of happens, you know, and you look back and go, oh, huh. I wonder if that has meaning. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go on Josh's show and try to discover that. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're a psychologist, right? This is like, yeah, we're yeah. with personal discovery. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you graduate high school and then what? Because now you're an adult. You can make your own decisions. What do you do? Well, I went to Marquette University in um, Milwaukee, and I was just that got- Was that I, like, I'm going to Milwaukee, Wisconsin? Yeah, I'm going to Milwaukee. Yes. That was like- That was big. Yeah. That was that was big. And I mean, it wasn't scary only because my parents had traveled with us. So it's like I'd been to, you know, big cities before. But, um, but yeah, it was a little unnerving. And- um, and I, I remember distinctly picking my degree based on how few math classes were required to graduate. Which was what? Communication. Like the most basic degree ever. <laughs> and, um, and then I started, um, I, I interned and I started to actually work at an ad agency before I even graduated from, from college and graduated early because... I don't even know why I tried. I got done early. So I got out of college early and then, um, and then started in that, you know, producing and advertising. And, and from there it just spiraled into, you know, I'm doing this and then I'm going to moonlight the wedding planning. Oh, I'm going to just do the wedding planning full time. And then the, that was 10 years of my life. As crazy as that sounds. I can't believe I did that for 10 years. How big was that business? Was it just you? Did you have a team? It was me for a while, and then I had a team of people, and that was really cool because my goal when I started that was I wanted to be able to provide opportunities for other women who could make their own hours, do something they really liked, be home with their kids, and still be able to make enough money to you know do what they needed for their, for their family, and it happened. I remember going, oh my gosh, I have people working under me, and like it's their full-time job. Like... Oh my gosh, it was amazing. And and um and everybody enjoyed it. It was it's Wisconsin, so we, you know, it's not like New York weddings and LA weddings. It was like, so we're gonna do this with a hunting theme. 
Um, <laughs> I was going to ask, what does that mean? It's not like New York wedding. What does that translate to mean? It means like um, people have a, first of all, having a wedding planner is like a big luxury, even though like we weren't charging big prices. It was a luxury. It was a little fancy. And, um, and also it meant that, that, yeah, like there'd be times where we were like, well, we're going to use pheasant feathers that the groom killed, um, in all the boutonnieres. So we're going to get those to the florist. Like there would be things that you do that, you know, Is that, that right? nobody probably does anywhere else, you know, but, but it was fun. And we, we met, I met so many wonderful couples that I actually still keep in touch with. So that was fun. And that went for 10 years, the wedding planning. Yeah, 10 years. And at that point, you, you were still the, the smith, the tinsmith, coppersmith, all of that was not even on your radar yet? Or it always no. was? No. 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 Oh, my God. No. Are you no. kidding? Like, I was, I, I was raised by a, a, a non-handy dad. You know, I think we had, like, hammers in our house and a couple screwdrivers and maybe a vice I never saw him use. I mean, it was not... That no, 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 nothing. Because we were raised to think like we needed to do white collar jobs to succeed. And so I never would have thought that getting my hands black with, you know, rosin was that just, no, it never, it never was a part of the process. And even really when I wrote the books and when I even started to think about making these cookware lines, it, it, it was such a natural progression. Even starting my internship, it was or internship apprenticeship under a master smith it was a totally organic thing where it was i'm just gonna go and see how they were made for like a day and just kind of shadow bob and he's letting me come to his workshop and i'll just see it and that way i'm more knowledgeable about how cookware was made originally because i should be doing my research and then he was like well next time you make one i'm like oh yeah i'll come back and then and then after that, he's like, oh, next time make one out of copper. I'm like, yeah, I'm all in for that. And then he's like, well, and next time. And all of a sudden it became every week, once or twice a week for hours at a time. And now it's been like two and a half years of me doing that. So it's just, you never know where life's going to take you. What about the, the pheasant feathered boutonnieres? Where did that business go? How did that transition? Oh, um, eventually I couldn't do it all. And I had three kids at the time and I was doing the books and the writing by books and doing, starting the cookware. And so I sold it to um, a, a lovely woman um, who is a, she's a native American woman and um, she had been working for me a little bit and she, 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 she bought it for me and she's been, she's been carrying it on for the past two years. So it's still going. It's just not mine anymore. Hmm. So, so you had to look inside a specific day and acknowledge, you know what? I am going in this direction. I'm not going in that direction. Was it an easy decision? No, I, I, I held on to the idea that I could kind of still do it all for a while. And then I don't even, I think it was at the point when I had a, a client or two and they would need me and I'd be like, I really don't care about the wedding bus and I really don't care about the color of the bridesmaid shoes and I it's just not something I care about anymore and then that's not fair to my clients and it was I it just I was like it's time done I'm a maximizer 
or no, a simplifier. My husband's a maximizer. So I'm like a done. Once I hit it, it's done. You know, okay, 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 done. And then there was no looking back. Hmm. And now you're on this route and you have Bob to thank for it. Kind of. Yeah. Way to go, Bob. No, <laughs> no, it is. And, and, um, I, I, I love what I do in a, in, and I'm, still kind of shocked that I love what I do because it's not anywhere I thought I'd see myself. And, and every week there's still so many challenges and there's there, every time I want to make something, I feel like I'm swimming in our uncharted waters. And um, so it's both challenging and it's extremely unnerving because there's very, I, I, I still feel like I, I don't know what I'm doing half the time and please hope nobody else notices. But I'm not afraid to say that either. Like, I still am learning, you know? I'm still learning. Tell me about that. Where is the, where is the self-doubt? Because I'm still young and I don't have decades of, like, mechanic work behind me, you know? I come from a place that this isn't my background. And I, um... I feel like I have to work a little harder to be taken seriously because I am a young woman in this trade and because the trade itself is so unusual. And so when you say I'm a coppersmith and the reaction of almost everybody you meet is to go, really? Like, that's not like filling you with confidence. It's like, yes, I am. And this is how I can prove it. And you have to do that every time. Hmm. That, you know, that takes energy. So that's kind of, I think what that means. This is a very philosophical discussion. I was, I was not prepared to dive this deep. I hope I'm doing it justice. <laughs> yes, you are. You really are. So you, I mean, we all have that self-doubt, which is what I love. And, and uh, it, it's so fascinating that there's this, there's this, there's this need to prove. And I could, I could totally relate to that. And I, I'm not even in the coppersmith industry. I think it happens for all of us. I think we're all there on some level. We feel unequipped, unqualified. It's just amazing. I think it's human nature. I think we all are, con we all, I mean, you know, you meet people that's, that are confident. You say they're, they're a confident person, but I bet any money that they still need affirmation in some way, shape or form. And I think that we all have that inherently in us and some more than others or your position in life has you feeling that way more often than you normally would. But I think that that's, a, I think that that's something that we all need to be okay with and saying, you know, I feel like a fraud every day of my life, but the only thing you can do is just to keep trying, you know, you feel because you're always, you're always making it up as you go along. You're always just making it up. And, and that's kind of what I mean by that. I'm always, I'm always learning every day I go in the shop and I take a piece of copper and I want to put some tin on it. I have to take a deep breath and go, okay. Even though I've done hundreds of pots every time it feels like the first time hmm. because every time something could go different or something could go wrong or it doesn't, it doesn't turn out what the way I see it in my head or something. And so you have to work past that feeling of you're not good enough and you're just making it up and you're, you're not really good at this. Don't let anyone know. Hmm. So you yeah. have a very uh, intriguing 
history of your, of your journey here, looking back on your younger self, what advice do you give that person? I would encourage them, her, to ask, to, can, to always ask why not, and then do it. You know, can we do this? Why not? Just try it. Just do it. Don't, um, and don't worry quite so much about what you should be doing because there is no, there is no roadmap for anything. There is no, you should be doing this instead of this. You know, when it comes to, to an entrepreneurial mindset, you should just be like, why not? Let's try it. The worst that's going to happen is I'm going to be exactly where I am right now, except I'll still be smarter. Hmm. So having that mentality early on, I think would have saved me a little heartache and I would have been braver to, you know, try striking out on my own even earlier than I did. So, yeah, yes, yes, yes. What mantra do you live by today? I do live by the why not. And, 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 but, you know, if you say, you know, why not? And yes to things, then the fo- you have to follow through. It's like, why not? And follow through, which is hard because if you do that, you have to also recognize that you're going to have so many projects and ideas on your plate that it, it gets very overwhelming very quickly. But I think by saying, why not? I'm just going to do it. And doing it, it, it puts you in a place that most people don't go because most people are a lot of talk and not a lot of do. So actually doing that's the secret sauce. You know what's so amazing about this part of the conversation? I love it. I agree with it. I embrace it. What you're saying is live in integrity and be integral with yourself. So what you say you're going to do, you do. And I now force myself to do that. I will say a lot of things either to others or to myself. And I am now in a position in life, never was, because like you said, uh, guilty as charged, a lot of talk, no action. You know, whether it was self-talk or self-doubt, just I, I couldn't bring myself to do much of any of that. And then you still complain and you wonder why. And it's like, well, look around, look what you're doing, you're not doing. So right now, in this portion of my life, I've made a very real and conscious effort to live in integrity and to call it that and to be that and to say, well, if I say something, I have to follow through. And it, it feels amazing. It really, I mean, I, I think by definition, that's the point of it. When you are able to do that, it just feels amazing. And all of this negative stuff rarely creeps in or if it does it doesn't creep in a way that overtakes your life and has you crying in the bedroom again well it's powerful because it puts you in control of whatever you can be in control of and that's part of why it feels so amazing because everybody likes to feel powerful even if it's coming from a very small tiny you know egotistical place and it puts you on the map as somebody who does follow through and that usually breeds more and more success on every level. And if more people were like that, man, we'd get a lot of stuff done in this world. Well, we can each be like that, right? We could just take personal responsibility and be like that. And, and that's the road I'm on and it, it's great and it feels great. 
do you believe that everything happens for a reason? Yes, I do. I do. I, and I think to follow that up that, um, if you're lucky enough at some point in your life, you're able to stand back and see the, your thread in the tapestry and understand why everything happened the way it did. And you can have that moment and go, that's why. I think that that's, that's kind of the, the, the pinnacle. Maybe that's what we all get right before we die. Wouldn't that be lovely? Like, this was your thread. Look at what it did. I think, yeah, everything happens for a reason. Absolutely. Whether or not we get to see why it did, that's the special part. If you're wow. lucky. Deep, Sarah. Deep. You went there. <laughs> I like it. I have a lot Thank of time you. over the buffing wheel to just think. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, well. You know, <laughs> I love that. Maybe that's what happens when we die. We get to see everything. Like, why? Why did that happen? What was the purpose or meaning of that? It's like, oh, I see. Fascinating. Yeah, exactly. Are you spiritual or religious in any ways? I was raised extremely strictly Catholic. Um, I went to Marquette and wanted to become a Jew. Wait, I'm sorry. Is your um is your mic muffled? Did you just move the mic? Oh, did I just muffle it? Is that there better? you are? Go ahead. Oh, sorry, that's weird. Um, yeah. I, I was, you you what now? I was raised very strictly Catholic, and when I went to college, I decided I wanted to um, convert to Judaism, and <laughs> I know. What? Can you connect that dot? What was like, ah, the Jews. Now, disclosure, I'm Jewish, so I can say the Jews. You can say that? Yes, um, I could, right. And so can you. you know right. I, yeah. um, I, um, uh, I took a, a lot of theology classes because you have to at Marquette, and then I took a lot more. And I, um, for the first time, I was exposed to people who were not very Catholic, and it opened my eyes and I started to go, okay, I need to get to the bottom of religion. And cause I'm a researcher. And I, I was like, oh, well the Jews were actually, you know, like that's where Catholicism is rooted. So if I was right, I mean, I should go back to the source. So that's where I should be. And, um, and, on, and to this day, I mean, we, I, I talked to a lot of teachers and they were like, well, like, you're not going to live where there's a lot of Jews and your husband's still Catholic. And unless he's going to convert, it's going to be really hard. So why don't you just practice Judaism in your house? So my kids, you know, they, they, they're not raised strictly Catholic. And, and so um, on a religious standpoint, that's where I sit. I'm, I'm a Catholic who pretends she's a Jew and my Bible's only in Hebrew. And um, are you serious? That's amazing. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Wait, you need me to prove it? I'll go get it for you. <laughs> um, it's amazing. When the Jehovah, oh my gosh, I don't know what we're allowed. Sometimes when religious groups come to our house and ask about seeing my Bible, I pull it out. And then they ask about the name of God and I say which one there are four and I start going to Hebrew and they leave. Um, it's That's wonderful. That's and, yeah. um, but um, on a spiritual sense, yeah, I mean, I'm spiritual. I believe in the soul. I believe, I don't know if I believe in reincarnation, but I do believe that, that there is a deeper force at work. I mean, if you want to go very native American, you know, spiritual on that, I mean, I'm all for that. I'd love to go on a spirit walk someday. What is that? What does that mean? Exactly. 
Um, it's it's a ritual uh, a lot of Native, Native Americans would do. They, you know, where they kind of um, go to a place. A lot of people, you know, like the world between or or a, a different plane of existence and and have an experience. I think that that would be wonderful because I, I think we all have light inside of us and we we can do different. Everybody's light is different. Every you know, my husband's is different than mine. Some people it's like low and slow and real warm and cozy and you have to get close to it. And other people just shoots out of them. And other people it's bright and other people it's you know kind of a sick light. You know, I mean, it's everybody's is different. I think that that comes from that place, that spiritual place. I want to go on a spiritual walk. I want an experience. I'm all for that kind of stuff. I think it'd be so cool. I get, I want to do it, but I'm also, I feel like now's not the time. I feel like I need to keep my feet grounded because my children are so young. Like Mm. I'm afraid to do it right now. In due time. In due time. What do you believe happens when it's all over? When our time here on earth comes to an end? I believe we our light or our spirit continues to exist um, in a state of kind of um, static levels of joy. I don't know. So like if you're an inherently unhappy person, that, that existence for you is going to be inherently more unhappy than the next person who sees happiness and forces themselves to to see happiness or do good things to create a better world. I think that, um, and maybe that's a little bit of the Catholic, you know, if you do good works, you will have a good afterlife. Um, uh, and I think the, Jew, the Jewish faith has that too, I think a little bit. I, I, you know, I, I think that it's a, I think it's a, a light existence and it, we all have a different position in, in the spectrum of light when we die. Mm, absolutely perfect. I will leave you with this final question. Sarah Daman, how would you like to be remembered? I don't worry about me, but I love the idea that the copper pots that I'm making right now or I'm fixing up that are already 300 years old so that somebody can use them again, that they'll be found in hundreds or thousands of years from now. And people will go, oh, look at this. Isn't this a nice artifact? And it's something I made because copper doesn't rust and it and it, it'll last and it'll be in, you know, if one of my pots goes down, you know, in an archaeological dig and in 3,000 years they dig it up, like that'll be awesome. Hmm. Like, Well, that's, that's full circle because when I introduced you, I said, how you doing? You said, I'm doing awesome. And we started there. We're going to end there. This has been absolutely awesome. You are awesome. What you do is awesome and fascinating and intriguing. And let's not forget important that should not be lost. So I want to thank you, Sarah, for joining us today and for going down that path that I gently let us down. Thank you for uh, opening up and uh, sharing your thoughts with us. Very cool well, to, uh, to do this. Thank you for having me. This is really fun. So thank you. <laughs> so glad you enjoyed. And I hope everybody listening also enjoyed if you did and you found a little nugget of something out of it. Don't keep it to yourself. Do something with it. Take one small step into the world. Put something out there and make amazing things happen. We're going to do something like this before too long. There's another episode not too far behind. You know that. Until we meet again, everybody, go get them. 
Thanks for listening to The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. Make sure to subscribe through iTunes or Google Play so you can get notified every time we publish a new episode. And we'd love to hear your thoughts with an honest review on iTunes. Finally, follow us on your favorite social media platforms to keep the conversation going with Josh Carey and today's guest. Until next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.